Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Exodus chapter 37 and verse 17. This is a passage where the Lord tells Ezekiel to join together two six. It's prophetically representing, one's representing Ephraim, one's representing Judah, making them one. It's a prophetic statement of how they would be one. But here the word achad is used again, Exodus chapter 37 and verse 17. Then join them one to another for yourself into one stick, echad, and they will become one echad in your hand. Two sticks joined together, made into one. There's no way that a god has the exclusive idea of absolute singularity and meaning. None whatsoever. And as such, the idea of one God in three persons fits just fine with the concept depicted by this Hebrew term, echad. Now again... The idea here in in no way is to imply when we talk about the Trinity or in what I'm explaining to you here that, that God is many gods. No. We're in complete agreement with the Jews when it comes to the Shema. The Lord our God, the Lord is one God. Christianity teaches nothing less than that. Just as Paul declares in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. God the Father, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the Scriptures declare to be the same God, one God. The concept of the Trinity simply holds that our one God exists in the form of three persons who are equally and fully the same God. Even Paul declares this truth in regard to Jesus himself in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It's a passage you know. We use it often for many applications. But listen specifically what he's saying here because he's talking about Jesus and he gives Jesus equality with God, making him one with God. Listen. He says in Philippians 2, verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So Paul summarizes here this beautiful picture of Jesus, the humble suffering servant who comes, and he comes in the in 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 the form of, of a human being on this earth, and yet he makes very clear that he's God. He he made no bones that he didn't consider it to be robbery to be equal with God. He was God. He simply chose to come in human flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, as we know him. You see. And yet God. 
Even Jesus himself made this same declaration of oneness with God, with the Father. He says in John chapter 10, verse 30, John chapter 10 and verse 30, I and my Father are one. Interesting. I don't think it gets any clearer than that. And yet, there are those that would pull a passage apart like that to, to minimize that, to say, well, what Jesus is saying here, he's not saying that he's God. He's just saying that he's one in mind with the Father. He's one in spirit with the Father, just like we're that way with Jesus as Christians. No, that's not what Jesus is saying contextually. Jesus is saying exactly what he's saying. I and my Father are one. Now, again, the idea of the Trinity, which we hold as Christians, does not in any way suggest that we believe that there are three manifestations of God, nor do we believe that there are three faces or aspects of God. Such an idea is known as Sabellianism or modalism, and it's something which traditional Christianity does not in any way hold, affirm, or agree with. There are entire religions within Christianity that do hold to that idea that it's the various faces of God. But even though that view might be easier to comprehend, and I think that's why that's taken root, because it's easier to comprehend. Well, well, what we're talking about are different aspects of God, different characteristics of God, different faces of God. That, that's easier for us with our human minds to comprehend and rationalize, but it is not at all what the Scriptures present to us about God. And so ultimately, it diminishes the nature of the Godhead as the Bible presents it to us for us to give ourselves over to that idea. There's no question that the concept of the Trinity, which, which as traditional Christians we hold, is, it isn't easy to be grasped. It isn't easy for us to understand. It is a mystery beyond our comprehension. But it's absolutely essential that we see this depiction of God that he's given to us of himself as a compound unity, as a plurality of one, and to accept him as such. Because anything else and anything less, any changes we make to that, is going to lead us to a wrong understanding of God and of Jesus and of his Spirit. And keep in mind, it is a confused and distorted view of the Godhead that is at the heart of most cultic teachings. If you've ever been approached by those in different cultic groups, whether it be the Jehovah Witnesses, or the Mormons, or others, how quickly they will come to attack the divine nature of Jesus. Uh, he, he may be a God, but a lesser one, or a great prophet, or a great man, or, or in sync with God, but they'll attack the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus can't be deity if he's not God, because to hold Jesus as deity and not being God would to create separate gods, and there are no separate gods, and the scriptures are clear on that as well. So even though the, the word Trinity might not be found anywhere in the Scriptures, it is a concept that the Scriptures speak to nonetheless. And we see it here visibly on display on this day when Jesus was baptized because all three members of the Trinity are present and they're interacting. Jesus, God the Son, was the focus. But God the Spirit is descending upon him, and God the Father is speaking. All three are present, and, and we see it throughout the Scriptures. And it's clearly portrayed. So we, so, so that we'll know it is God that as he exists, he exists in his fullness as one God, yet as three separate and distinct persons as that one God. 
So one writer summed it up well. He said this, Within his own mysterious being, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The designations are just ways in which God is God. Within the Godhead, there are three persons who are neither three gods nor three parts of God, but co-equally and co-eternally God himself. One, God. Now, you might be asking me at this point, so what? What's it matter? Why, why is belief in the Trinity a big deal? Why, why go off on this tangent today? Why do that? Well, it certainly isn't because I didn't have enough other material to teach on. <laughs> I mean, I've got the whole gospel of Luke because I felt that the Holy Spirit wanted us to stop here because this is essential. It's essential to your faith on a couple of levels. Number one, it's essential because belief in the Trinity is essential to the integrity of Jesus' claim about himself. Let me say that again. Belief in the Trinity is essential to the integrity of Jesus' claim about himself. If you deny the Trinity, you have to deny that Jesus is God. And so he's then, if he's not God, then he's an imposter. It makes him a liar because he, pro he repeatedly proclaimed himself to be God or received that proclamation from others about himself without pushing it off, just as we looked at in John chapter 10 and verse 30. But he also does it in a number of other places. For example, John chapter 8, verse 58. John chapter 8 and verse 58, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Hmm. Now, we read that verse, and on a quick reading, unless you've spent lots of times in your Bible, and I pray you have, you read that, and you think, well, Jesus, you know, what's he even talking about here? Well, that, was, that was a distinct statement and declaration of divinity that he was making on his part. And do you know how we also know that besides the words he uses? And we'll talk about those words in a moment. We know it because of the reaction that comes in verse 59, where we find that right after Jesus makes this statement, the Jewish religious leadership that hears him, they're losing their minds over this, and they're picking up rocks, and they're wanting to stone him to death. Why? Because they knew the implications of what it was that Jesus was saying here. They knew that when Jesus applied this phrase, I am to himself, and then also in the context of saying, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am, that he was applying the very name of God to himself. That he was saying, I am God, right there in that statement. You know, people, I hear people say all the time, well, you know, and I see people writing on this stuff. Well, you know, Jesus never said he was God. Yes, he did. Right here he did. Right here he did. <laughs> Not only there, John chapter 14, verses 7 through 10. Oh, by the way, just that I am, do you know where that comes from? It comes back from the day when Moses looks at God and he says to him, when God wants to send him to Pharaoh and to the people to represent the people, and, and, and he turns to him and he says, well, who should I say sent me? And do you remember God's answer? Tell him that I am that I am sent you. <laughs> Tell him that I am that I am. That doesn't mean much to us. The best, but, but, but the best translation of that would be the all-becoming one. I am the all-sufficiency. I'm the one that meets all your need. I am the one that's everything you need. That would be the idea behind I am. It also means pre-existent. I am, I've always been. <laughs> God declared himself to be, and now here's Jesus taking that name to himself. I am.
John chapter 14, verses 7 through 10. John 14, verses 7 through 10. This is where the disciples are asking, you know, Jesus, can you show us the Father? Can you show us? And he says in verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. <laughs> Verse 9, Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. This Father in me, I'm in the Father, is all a declaration of oneness with the Father, a declaration of equality that Jesus is making. And he's telling these guys, man, you're asking to see God, and I'm right here in front of you. I've been with you all this time. Hmm. John chapter 20, verse 28 and 29. A declaration made by one of Jesus' disciples, a declaration that for a Jew to make would have been considered blasphemy if it was misunderstood of what he was saying here. But in John chapter 20, verse 28 and 29, and Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas sees Jesus for who he is, and he worships him for it. You are God. If Jesus were not divine and Thomas would have said that, he would have been a polytheist, a worshiper of multiple gods, blasphemous. Even to Thomas's mind, it would have been blasphemous, but it wasn't blasphemous to Thomas because he understood that Jesus wasn't a separate God. Yes, he's declaring Jesus' divinity here, but he's declaring him to be the divine one God. My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't push that away. He doesn't refuse that proclamation of himself. In fact, he commends him for it, but says, man, blessed are those who don't have me with them as you do, and they see it. That's you and me. I pray that you see Jesus for who he is. That he is the divine God, the one God. Hmm. So if you believe that there is no Trinity, then you have to equally conclude that Jesus is not God. And if you conclude that Jesus is not God, then you have to conclude that he was a liar and a deceiver. And there is no other option to that, none whatsoever. Now, here's the second reason why this is important, and it's really connected to the first, but belief in the Trinity is essential to the integrity of the truths concerning salvation. It's, it's essential to the integrity of the truths concerning salvation. If you deny the Trinity, then you also have to conclude that the teachings of the New Testament concerning salvation are misleading and untrue as well, because they teach that Jesus has been given the power to forgive sin, which is something which only God himself has the power to do, just as Jesus declares is recorded in Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. 
Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting, sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. When he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees, <laughs> they lost their mind again. Yeah, they did. It doesn't say it that way. It just said, began to reason saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Their words are truth. No one. The answer is no one but God alone. Verse 22, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. You know what Jesus is saying right there? He's saying, so that you'll know that I am God, because you already said it, only God can forgive sins. And so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, They say to you, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. It's an understatement. Jesus said, Hey, I did the hard thing, but I'm capable. I'm capable of healing and I'm capable of forgiving sins because I am God. So if Jesus' claims are false, then we're all in a lot of trouble because that means that we're still in our sin because we've been given, now we haven't been given a Savior who can forgive our sins. Because only God can do that. And so it must be God that would be our Savior and we would be in our sin with no solution to it if Jesus Christ is not who he says he is. And also, if you deny the Trinity, then you have to conclude that the Scriptures are untrue in regard to Jesus raising himself from the dead, which is exactly what he claimed he would do, and which he did. In John chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus has said to them. Only God can raise the dead. And here Jesus says, I will raise up my body. Why? Because he's God. Now that's an essential theological premise for us because the scriptures clearly teach that Jesus' ability to overcome his own death is linked to his ability to overcome sin and thus ultimately to his ability to raise us up from the dead as well, to give us resurrected life. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. Romans 6, verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer 
longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if Jesus isn't God, then all of the claims to be able to do these things are nothing more than a sham. Fake news. (laughs) And it means that we're still all under the dominion of sin. And that's not good news. But Jesus' claims and the claims of Scripture, they're absolutely true. Jesus is God, and as such, he does have the power over sin and ultimately over death, just as he declares he has the power to do. As he said in John 5, 21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Why? Because he and the Father are one. They're the same God. They're not separate gods. Jesus isn't a lesser God. They're one God. Folks, our God is a triune God. We may not fully be able to grasp that, to put our arms around that with our human minds, but he is a triune God, just as he is displaying himself to be in this passage that deals with his baptism, and just as we've seen in the rest of these scriptures and elsewhere that we just don't have time to go into today. But I hope you get it. I hope you understand that. I hope you understand the picture that we are given of who God is in his totality, in his complete being, that he is one God and yet three separate persons, but all one God. God is Elohim. He is a plurality of one. And I pray you get it because it's an essential to your Christian faith, which is under siege today. It's under siege by all sorts of theologies and spiritual ideas that have no root in truth in the scriptures themselves. Be very careful this in this time period in which we're living. I know we're living in the last days, but right now in this period of time in which we're living in the midst of crises in our nation and our world, it is an opportune time for all of this weird stuff to just creep in and for us as God's people to get swept away into wrong ideas. Don't get swept away. Know the truth of the Scriptures and stand on the truth of the Scriptures alone. Well, let's look on this morning. We have some time, and so let's go there. I'm going to butcher a bunch of names for you today so you can sit at home and laugh as I do that. I told the first group as I read that this morning, I did a pretty good job grabbing names, but I can't promise you I said them with the right pronunciation. But as someone once told me, just make sure if you don't know how to pronounce it the right way, just make sure you pronounce it the same way each time. And I told them, don't go home and listen to the live stream because you're going to hear me say it differently this time. But you guys didn't hear me say it the first time, so you're going to think I said it right. Here we go. (laughs) Look at verse 23 of chapter 3 in book of Luke. Now, Jesus himself began his ministry at about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph. He says that because as supposed, meaning that he appeared to be his son, but we know that he was his adopted son, that Joseph didn't bear Jesus, right? He was, it was the divine, you know, uh, conception between Mary and the Holy Spirit. But it says the, the supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jana, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthiah, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthiah, the son of Semai, the son of Joseph, the son of Judah, 
the son of Johannes, the son of Retha, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, son of Aldi, the son of Kosem, the son of Eladam, the son of Er, the son of Jose, the son of Eleazar, the son of Yoram, the son of Matat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonan, the son of Elakim, the son of Mileah, the son of Menon, the son of Matadiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarag, the son of Reu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Selah, the son of Canaan, the son of Araxphad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalel, the son of Canaan, son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And on that note, I feel like passing out. <laughs> you know, we look at this, but, but Luke now, he gives us this genealogical account of Jesus' lineage. And there are only two gospel writers who do this. Only two gospel writers that give us the genealogical record. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.